father's name before his father's face and in the new Jerusalem appoint for me a place. Please be seated. Good evening. You know, it's been a common theme among religious people, I guess since the dawn of time, that people believe if they can worship in the right way that God will bless them. There are people today who believe that as long as I show up for worship every time the doors are open, if I just sing the right songs in the right way, if I just pray the right prayers in the right way, if I take the Lord's Supper every Sunday, if I give to the church of my means, then that's all it takes to be right with God, and He's going to bless me. We see this throughout the Bible. We see it in the Old Testament. We see it in the New Testament. God's people believing if they, if they followed the ritual that they would be blessed by God. And of course, the grave error in all of that is that a focus only on how you worship doesn't account for everything that God asks of us. Certainly worship and worshiping in the way that God has prescribed is something that we should all be attentive to, that we should do with spirit and in truth, but that's not all that's required of us as Christians. You've heard me say over and over again, it's not just about what we do when we gather inside the building, it's about what we do when we scatter from this place as well. You're still the church, whether you're inside these four walls or outside of them. When it comes to being a child of God, how we live our life is every bit as important as how we worship. In fact, the two go hand in hand. So don't claim that you're worshiping God correctly when you're living any way you choose during the week. You see, how we live our lives should affect our worship. And our worship, when we leave here tonight, should affect the way that we live our lives the rest of this week. And this is something that Micah, the minor prophet, highlights in his book, Micah prophesied against the northern kingdom, but he also had a warning for the city of Jerusalem. This prophet brings a major message of judgment and destruction for the rebellious behavior of Israel. I want to treat tonight a little differently. Rather than looking at this like a sermon, let's look at it like a Bible study. So hopefully you have your Bibles open or your app open to Micah chapter um, well, I'm not going to give you a chapter. We're going to skip around, okay? So look, just look at Micah. Right now, look to chapter 3. In Micah chapter 3, and starting in verse 8, here's what we read. Micah says, On the other hand, I am filled with power, with the Spirit of the Lord, and with justice and courage to make known to Jacob his rebellious act, even to Israel his sin. Now, what I want you to realize is that most of the book of Micah speaks of the accusations and the coming judgment against Israel. But as is often the case with these minor prophets, there's not just an announcement of judgment, there's also a message of hope. 
And that's certainly what we see in the book of Micah, just as we've seen throughout the minor prophets so far. The book of Micah can really be divided up pretty easily. Three sections. We have the justice of God in chapters 1 through 3. We have the kingdom of God in chapters 4 through 5. And we have the mercy of God in chapters 6 and 7. Among the sins of God's people was that leaders were greedy and they acquired their wealth on the backs of the poor. They had been immoral in the way that they gained their funds and the way that they gained their money. They stole it from others. Notice chapter 2 now, verses 1 and 2. He says, Woe to those who scheme iniquity, who work out evil on their beds. When morning comes, they do it. For it is in the power of their hands. They covet fields and then seize them. And houses, and they take them away. They rob a man and his house, a man and his inheritance. The people of power saw people that were, were living in, in certain houses or had certain fields. And the people in power said, I want that. And because I'm in power, I'm going to take it. And they gained wealth that way. Not only were the leaders getting rich through immoral means, but the prophets were doing the same thing. The prophets of this day and age were corrupt as well because they would promise God's blessing for anyone who would give them some money. They would say that they would offer God's protection to anyone who would give them a certain sum of money. Look at chapter 3, verse 11. Her leaders pronounce judgment for a bribe. Her priests instruct for a price. And her prophets divine for money. Yet they lean on the Lord saying, Is not the Lord in our midst? Calamity will come upon us. And so here we have Micah, who comes on the scene of all of this to let the people know that their actions have not escaped the sight of God. That God has been paying attention the whole time, and now somebody's going to pay. God is well aware of the sinful behavior of these prophets, these priests, these people in power, and He has removed His protection from them. And so what's going to happen is that the northern kingdom and Jerusalem are going to be ravaged. Because he has taken his protection away, the nation of Assyria is going to sweep in and take out the northern kingdom and Jerusalem. And after the Assyrians will come the Babylonians with even a greater destruction. If you look at verse 12 of chapter 3, it says, Therefore, on account of you, Zion will be plowed as a field. Jerusalem will become a heap of ruins, and the mountain of the temple will become high places of a forest. God's judgment is going to take on the form of the oppressive nation who will evade them, invade them in the northern kingdom and Jerusalem and leave them lying in ruins. But what's interesting is that in chapter 2, verses 12 and 13, we find a poem. And interestingly enough, in, in the midst of all this, we find a poem of hope. It reads like this. I will surely assemble all of you, Jacob. I will surely gather the remnant of Israel. I will put them together like sheep in the fold, like a flock in the midst of its pasture. They will be noisy with men. The breaker goes up before them. They break out, pass through the gate, and go out by it. So their king goes on before them, and the Lord at their head. Religious folks tend to view grace as a New Testament concept, right? I've said before, we tend to think that God was this mean and ruthless and wrathful God of the Old Testament. There was no grace involved whatsoever, but when we, got over, when we get over to the New Testament, God mellows out a little bit. And now he's full of grace. 
and he withholds his judgment and maybe takes a softer stance on sin. Folks, the last time I checked, Micah is in the Old Testament. And these words are filled with grace and with mercy. God had every right to punish the Israelites for their behavior. Every right. They had broken the covenant that they had made with him. And so a holy God must punish sin. But what we fail to miss or fail to see sometimes or what we miss sometimes is the fact that God was disciplining disciplining his people. He wanted what was best for them. We see a God that punishes evil and wrongdoing and we, we get the sense that he loves doing it. And that's not necessarily the case. Because even, even in the midst of judgment, we find a God that offers hope. We find grace and mercy. Because after the dust settles on the destruction that God has levied, he's going to shepherd a remnant of his people and set himself up as their king. He has a plan for his people. He doesn't give up on them, even though he punishes them. And even though this destruction seems harsh and it's great and it's widespread, he loves his people and he wants them to win. In chapter 4, verses 1 through 7 he sets forth a promise of hope. And in this section, God promises that the ruined Jerusalem temple will not be permanent. That there will come a day when God will exalt his temple and fill it with his presence and fill the city with a remnant of his people. And God will become the king over all nations, bringing peace throughout all the earth. And I want you to notice verses 6 and 7 of chapter 4. It says, In that day, declares the Lord, I will assemble the lame and gather the outcast, even those whom I have afflicted. And I will make the lame a remnant and the outcast a strong nation. And the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion from now on forever and ever. Now the, the latter half of chapter 4 and on into chapter 5 is more poetic imagery of how a remnant from Assyria and from Babylonian captivity will return to a new Jerusalem. They're going to come home, and they're going to see this new messianic kingdom from the line of David who will rule over them. This messianic king will rule over them. And you look at verse 2 of chapter 5, it says, But as for you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you one will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. He's speaking of this messianic kingdom and this messianic king. And this king and this kingdom will be God's people. The remnant will become a blessing to all nations. At the same time, God will bring his final justice to purge all the evil from him. In chapter 6 and 7, Micah continues this theme of warning and then of hope as he confronts, once again, the unjust economic practices of Israel. It brings us to a signature passage of the book. We talked about it this morning a little bit. It's found in Micah chapter 6 and starting in verse 6. You may recall these words. Micah says, With what shall I come to the Lord and bow myself before the God on high? Shall I come to him with burnt offerings, with yearling calves? Does the Lord take delight in thousands of rams and ten thousand rivers of oil? Shall I present my firstborn for my rebellious acts, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? Who has told you, O oh man, what is good? And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God? You know, when we talk about worship equating to our livelihood, that's what Micah is approaching here. 
and all of the disgrace of the people of power and the prophets and the priests, they still were worshiping God. And through the prophet Micah, God's saying, why? Why worship me? Your heart is far from me. I could not care any less about your worship because of the way you're living your life. Your life is diametrically opposed to your worship. And worship is about the heart. It's not about a ritual or a procedure. And God punishes them for this. That's what Micah is highlighting. He's saying, you, you think you're religious. You think because you're doing right things in a ritualistic way that God's going to bless you. But I'm telling you, your heart's not right. You can't engage in these egregious acts all the time and expect to come before God's throne, bring a sacrifice before the altar, and he think that that's okay, because it's not. But you look in, in, in chapter 7, verses 8 through 20, Israel is personified as a suffering and defeated individual. So again, we find hope in the midst of all of this. This individual is looking for God's mercy and begs God to hear him and forgive, but the question becomes why? Why should God listen? Why should God forgive? And two reasons are given here. Number one, because of God's character. It's who he is. Chapter 7, verse 18, Who is a God like you who pardons in iniquity and passes over the rebellious act of the remnant of his possession? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in unchanging love. The second reason is because of God's promises. You look at verse 20. You will give truth to Jacob and unchanging love to Abraham, which you swore to our forefathers from the days of old. These final words are an allusion back to God's covenant promises to Abraham. The promise that all nations will be blessed through this patriarch. For Israel to become a blessing to other nations, they must be faithful to their God. And this, of course, explains the back and forth between judgment and hope that we find throughout the book of Micah. If Israel's going to be a blessing, if they're going to be blessed by God, then God must confront their evil. But his judgment upon the people is what should lead to the hope that comes through him. It's encouraging to know that God has a plan for his people. And his plan is not total destruction, but rather his love and his promise that he's going to take care of his people. God's covenant is more powerful than, than human evil or wickedness. And that's encouraging not only to the people who are hearing this for the first time, but for, for us as well. Notice again, chapter 7, this time verse 19. It says, he will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. Yes, you will cast all their sins into the depths of the sea. What a beautiful ending to this message. A message of hope. So what does all this have to do with us? Where is our story within this story? Well, if you've been with us the last few weeks, you know that the minor prophets absolutely have something to say to us. My, my reason for doing a series on the minor prophets is because I was studying them in my own personal Bible study, and I thought, you know, I've never really preached exclusively on the minor prophets. So it was a challenge to me, and the more I dug in, the more I thought, maybe it'll be a challenge to other people as well. The one thing that I hope you've seen throughout this series is that we have a place in this story. In fact, this is our story. Again, the Bible was not written to you. It was written for you. You're not the original audience here, but you do play a part in all of this because you're the new Israel. You are God's chosen. 
You are Abraham's descendants. You are that seed that comes through Abraham. You are, or excuse me, Jesus was, but you are the people that comes now that is the remnant, that is the people that have been grafted into the kingdom. You are the chosen. We are Abraham's descendants, heirs according to promise, as Paul said. And that should be encouraging to us. That should give us hope. And what we learn through the book of Micah, through the prophet Micah, is that not only are we connected to God and to each other by what we do inside this church building, but we're connected to God and to one another by what we do outside of these walls as well. You see, through Micah, we learn that God is our king. If we didn't know that before, we should have, but we learn that God is our king, that he is just, that he loves mercy, and that's precisely what we see revealed about God in the book of Micah. And we also see that God expects his people to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with the king. The same instruction to them is what we abide by today. To love justice, to love mercy, to submit to the king. That's what we're supposed to be about. You see, being God's people is not just about coming to a building to worship God. That's important, but it's also about how we carry ourselves in Abilene, Texas, and the world abroad. We are to be a people who do justice, who love mercy, who walk humbly with the king. Our life should reflect our worship and vice versa. How we worship should change us in, in how we live. The failure of Israel was that they didn't do justice that they didn't love mercy, they didn't walk humbly with the king, they took advantage of the people, they were not just people, they were unjust, they were cruel and unmerciful, they did not submit to the king, in fact they rebelled against the king, and they were punished for it, because a holy God must punish sin. But in the midst of that destruction there was mercy, and there was hope on the horizon if they submitted to the king. And folks, for many decades there has been injustice in this country and the one example that I think of that breaks my heart is is how often years ago and not too long ago really when you think about it Christians would come and they would sit in pews like these and they would face forward and they would worship God and they would sing praises to his name, and they would take of the Lord's Supper, and they would hear a lesson from God's Word talking about how wonderful and majestic God is, and how we are to be merciful, and how we are to do justice, and how we are to walk humbly with the King, and all at the same time, they wouldn't let people of a different skin color come in and worship with them. When you read the words of Matthew 15, 9 and following, or you see the quote from Isaiah, that Jesus says there about vain worship. These men honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. That's vain worship. Vain worship is coming in and worshiping God, thinking that you're giving him your heart, and you won't even allow certain people to come in and worship with you. And it really frustrates me how we talk about, well, we just need to go back to being the church of the 50s and 60s. Okay, so we don't let people of different skin colors come in and worship with us? People talk about how great the church was in the 50s and 60s, and it grew and it grew, and I'm sure it did. But there were people and churches that wouldn't allow certain individuals to come in and worship with them. I don't want to go back to that. 
And please stop exalting the church of the 50s and 60s without paying attention to that. Because it's wrong. And there's no way you can make that right. That is vain and worthless worship. You are not worshiping God in spirit and in truth when you do not allow certain people to come in and worship with you only because of the color of their skin. And there were preachers who would preach it from the pulpit that it's okay, that that's what God would want. How sad and how awful that is. When mercy is absent and when justice is perverted in any nation, children of God must be the first to stand up and say this is wrong. And thanks be to God that there were some people in the 50s and 60s that were standing up and saying this is wrong. Thanks be to God that there were people who would not remain silent. And we sure cannot participate in it, but we cannot afford to remain silent either. We have to be a people who do justice, who love mercy, and who walk humbly with the king. That is our responsibility. And my friends, there is still injustice today. It's still occurring. And unless you've had your head in the sand, you know exactly what I'm talking about. It started back in the 70s. And we live in a country where justice is being denied and has been denied to millions. Millions. And what's even worse is this injustice involves precious children. It's, going, it's been going on for so long. And you know what I'm talking about. It's the murder of unborn children. Is there any greater injustice than the murder of defenseless, speechless children because they're unwanted? All because they're unwanted. Wherever there is injustice, God's people should be in the midst of it doing justice, loving mercy, and walking humbly with the king. We cannot participate in this injustice, and we cannot remain silent. If we are not going to stand tall and proclaim the truth, then who is? We must stand for the defenseless. We must show mercy to the defenseless. We should be there in the midst of all of it, doing justice, loving mercy, and walking with our king. And I realize that sometimes it feels like a helpless situation, and I realize that sometimes it seems like the cards are stacked against us. And we think, well, what can one person do? A whole lot. God has called on Christian people everywhere to not allow injustice, to do everything you can, to stand up for those who are being defeated, to have our voice heard and not be muffled, to not stop, and to keep proclaiming the message of doing justice, loving mercy, and walking humbly with our King. That's what we are to be about. And if we as the church are not out in front leading the way, then who's going to do it? You look around our broken and fractured world, they're not helping the situation. Are we going to do something? 
And you say, well, well Chris, what, what do we do? And sometimes it can seem like there's, like there's nothing we can do. Sometimes it's, it seems like, you know, there's, there's, it's just hopeless. Folks, it's, it's our responsibility to show mercy to those who need mercy. It's our responsibility to speak up for those who can't speak for themselves. It's our responsibility to, to wherever there's injustice, to do our best to make it right. To be a people who do justice, who love mercy, and who walk humbly with the King. And we sure can't participate in it. And we cannot be a people who rationalize the sins of the past, who somehow from a political standpoint try to rationalize the murder of the unborn. We need to be speaking up. And we need to be a people. Wherever there is injustice, we are there showing the right way, leading people to the truth, loving mercy, and walking humbly with our King. Let me remind you of Micah's words in chapter 6, starting in verse 6. With what shall I come to the Lord and bow myself before the God on high? Shall I come to him with burnt offerings, with yearling calves? Does the Lord take delight in thousands of rams and ten thousand rivers of oil? Shall I present my firstborn for my rebellious acts, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God? It's not just about being a loving and merciful people when we come to church on Sunday. It's about being people who do justice, who love mercy, and who walk humbly with the King when we leave this building. It's not just about doing right things when you're here on Sunday and Wednesday. Let, re me, let me remind you of the common theme that we see throughout the message of the minor prophets is that we are God's chosen, that we are the new Israel. We are Abraham's descendants. We are citizens of this new kingdom. We are the remnant. And so this message is for us just as much as it was for them. And we are to avoid the mistakes of the past. We are to be faithful. And being faithful isn't just about going to church. That's part of it. But it's about living lives worthy of wearing the title of Christian. It's about being people who proclaim something different. And in a world that perverts justice and even denies it to some we live differently. We proclaim something different. In a world that can be very unloving and unmerciful, we must love at the highest level and, and, and kill people with kindness. In a world that rejects God and His will, we must be salt of the earth and lights and, and, and shining brightly. We must love what God loves and we must live to please Him. As God's people, we have a glorious future on the horizon. And we cling to the promise of a future hope someday that we get to spend eternity with our Heavenly Father. But we can't be so focused on, on that glorious future that we forget that there is work to be done right here, right now. And it's not that we are militant people. It's not that we get so caught up in the social uh, justice issues that we forget about you know, worship or we forget about living right before God and, and, and we, we kind of lose our core and lose our direction. That's not what I'm talking about at all. I'm talking about being a people who are the church outside these walls as well as inside these walls. People who not only worship right, but live right. 
And people, whenever they see injustice, whenever they see someone in need, they look to meet that need. They look to help them. They look to show them something different. We are a people who do justice, who love mercy, and who walk humbly with the King. May we always be a people who make that about our core, seeking God, seeking the kingdom, being that chosen people, that remnant that we are to be. And may we never be a people who allow injustice to be a part of our character, our makeup. May we never be a people whose character shows us to be unmerciful. And certainly, may we never defy the will of God. There's a way that we worship and there's a way that we live, and both of them are highly important. We can't just pick one and dismiss the other. How we worship should affect how we live and vice versa. And let's also remember what vain and worthless worship truly is. I think we think it's coming in here, sitting in the pew, and just going through the motions. That's certainly not worship. But vain and worthless worship in the context that Jesus and Isaiah are talking about are people who want to come in here and sacrifice to God, but they don't want to live right. That's what Micah was highlighting, and that's what we should see tonight. If you're here tonight and you need to get your life in order, first of all, I'm glad you're here. That says something. But hopefully you're here because you want it to affect your life outside of here. And if it's not, then you've got to ask yourself, why is that happening? Why is my worship not affecting the way that I live and vice versa? So if you need the prayers and support of this church family, let us help you. If, you, if you're ready to put on Christ in baptism, then certainly let's do that tonight as well. But let's not forget when we leave here tonight that as the church... We are to be about doing justice, loving mercy, and walking humbly with the King. And as you go throughout this week, look for ways to show mercy. Look for those who are in need and show them something different. Come now as we stand.